This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 73, recorded on February 23rd, 2018. I'm your host, Tim Craig from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University. And we have a big group today. We're going to go around the horn here. We've got lots of uh, co-hosts and uh, an important guest. Uh, welcome, Ryan Roberts. Hey, how's it going? Good. Welcome, Neil A. Shaw. Happy to be here. Good. Welcome, Carrie Streeby. Hello again, everyone. Welcome, Mark Rinaldi. Hello, everyone. Mark, I think you were on one other episode yes. with us, weren't you? Yes. yes. So you're, you threw you're me a, off. and I had You're to now a repeat <laughs> offender. Uh, <laughs> and our special guest today is Dr. Peter Adamson from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Welcome, Peter. Good to be here, Tim. Peter is a repeat guest. I was going back through our archives. For those of you listening and who haven't listened to the episode that he joined us on before, he was on in May 2011, so almost seven years ago in episode number nine. So you were in the top ten, the first ten at least. Um, and in that episode, as we had done in every episode since then, we we talked about your background, your history, your mentors. We talked about uh, some of the things that, that you had done in terms of innovating, in terms of uh, clinical trial design like the Rolling Six model. Uh, we talked about a public-private partnership that you had hoped uh, would uh, materialize and and the Institute of Medicine report that you have been involved in and co-authoring. Rather than repeating all that here, uh, I would encourage listeners to go back and listen to that episode. Uh, and I'd kind of like to pick up where we left off that conversation, even though we're in a different place and a different group. Uh, and you were on Skype, but now you're here in person. So uh, I'm going to play just near the end of that original episode something that um, we asked you, and that was to look into your crystal ball. Uh, this was a question by Lionel Chow to talk about the next five years in pediatric oncology. So let's play that, and then let's just talk about maybe what's happened since then and, and how good a prognosticator you are or are not. So, uh, Peter, do you think you can put your uh, or have a look into your crystal ball for a second and tell us what you think the biggest advances will, advances will be for the, in the next five years in pediatric oncology? Well, on the, on the discovery side, on the laboratory side, I think over the next five years our understanding of what the driving processes behind childhood cancer, though that information is going to uh, incre increase and expand at, a, at, I think, a pace that we really can't imagine. We're going to know more about what drives the malignant process for children with cancer in the next five years than we've learned in the past 50. So it's going to be an era of discovery without question, a, a remarkable era, era of discovery. The challenge, of course, then, is how do we take those discoveries and make better treatments? And I think there's enough uh, data and enough uh, early data that in certain areas, we really are going to bring targeted therapy into the everyday care of certain cancers. Are we going to be are we going to completely get away from chemotherapy? Probably not in the next five years. Is our targeted agents going to be embedded in a number of treatments for childhood cancer? 
Absolutely. In summary, five years from now, our understanding is going to be remarkable. The challenge that we'll bring is how do we then develop the targeted therapies that are directed at what we think are the fundamental changes in the cancer cell and um, to develop clinical trials that can very efficiently get at those questions. Okay, so I think that was very well put and I think quite a bit prognostic or quite a bit predictive. Prophetic. Prophetic. Uh, what is your take on what you said back then and how we've done since then? Well, I think in part the discussion was, was on target. Uh, I think a lesson that has always been with us for cancer and childhood cancer is that it uh, usually turns out to be more complicated than we envisioned. So the, the hope that uh, sequencing uh, the genome of a spectrum of childhood cancers would uncover uh, the targets and the truths has turned out to be the case um, for a minority of cancers, and that sequencing is not finding uh, the answer for many. And whether it, whether it will be the epigenome, dark matter, or other areas, <laughs> uh, I think remains uh, a question. But the the approach where we're going to be using omic technologies uh, to drive discoveries, I think, is is still true today, and will continue to be uh, uh, increasingly incorporated. So o overall, I might give myself a B. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think um, you know the hope obviously had been there for, and I think we have made a lot of advances. I think what you said about discovery and drivers of cancers is. Uh, been in large part true, but there's just so much more to learn. And we certainly uh, haven't replaced chemotherapy uh, or even come close to that yet. But maybe what you said would come true in another 10 years, perhaps? Uh, yeah, I, I, I do think uh, moving away from chemotherapy may not be the right priority. Uh, moving away from the most toxic chemotherapy yeah. remains the priority. Uh, just because a drug was discovered in the 1950s and was highly effective doesn't mean we should discount it. Uh, so I do think that the drugs that we are using today uh, we will be continuing to use for the foreseeable future uh, and maybe for an extended future. And I, that may not be um, a negative outcome. Uh, the intensity and the toxicity that comes with many of our drugs uh, that becomes the goal as far as um, uh, avoiding those with uh, significant acute and perhaps more importantly significant long-term effects will, will become the goal. Do you think that maybe we haven't made as much progress as we had hoped five, uh, seven years ago is due mainly to the biology or due to society, due to funding, due to priorities, due to regulations? What, what, could you sort of put a percentage on those kinds of influences? Or? So the short answer is yes. <laughs> um, certainly at the top of the list is the biology. Even cancers that we give the same name uh, when it occurs in an adult as a child, we know the biology uh, is different and often fundamentally different. Uh, with very few exceptions, uh, there are cancers that are predominantly adolescent young adult where the biology does carry over. But for many, uh, be it AML, where the biology of AML in an older adult is distinctly different than the biology of uh, AML in a child. So that is... Uh, 
at the top of the list of our understanding uh, the biology. Uh, I think the investment that we need in research has not been sufficient. If one looks at uh, who funds biomedical research in this country across uh, fields, uh, I think many people would be surprised um, that the primary funder is, in fact, the private sector. So the private sector, the biopharmaceutical industry, funds about 60% of all research, NIH about 25%, state, local, and philanthropic uh, make up the difference. Uh, so the major funder of biomedical research is the private sector, but that is not true in childhood cancer. Uh, the economic models for the private sector to invest in childhood cancer in large measure are not there, and so the investment isn't there. So we are much more dependent upon uh, the public sector, NIH, NCI funding, and the philanthropic center and uh, philanthropic uh, resources to do the research. The good news is that there is movement uh, both in part in the private sector, but also um, in part as a result of uh, former Vice President Biden's uh, Bo Biden Moonshot Initiative where of the 13 projects that were prioritized for acceleration, two and plus one additional shared project directly are impactful for children, I think will make a difference. It's real money, uh, real programs rolling out, um, one in understanding fusion oncoproteins, uh, the genetic changes that are common to a, a spectrum of cancers, one, trying to leverage the great advances made in immunotherapy for certain adult cancers and try to extend those to pediatric cancers. And then a shared initiative that uh, for us to better understand how the tumors we treat today become resistant to our therapy. So in investment will will need to, to increase uh, in, in science. And then defining the target is not sufficient. Developing therapeutics that are able to leverage that knowledge uh, certainly has proven challenging with um, only a minority of targets right now being potentially druggable. We'll close at the end. I'll circle back around to get your thoughts about the next five years uh, so you can be thinking about that while um, we sort of talk about some other topics. Neelay. So uh, related to that um, point of uh, the necess necessity of uh, private investment, um, you know, pharma has to be um, a partner with us in that. And I feel like we certainly are feeling it um, more generally that they are coming to the table more. They are more approachable. Your talk today, you, you highlighted the fact that you got two separate pharma companies to collaborate on the same study, uh, which which would have been unimaginable, uh, you know, a decade ago to, to many of us. Yeah, unfortunately, that's something he had to highlight. Right. <laughs> unfortunately it's so. so but, unusual. You know, you're privy to, to a lot more of that conversation uh, than the rest of us. What do you think is really driving this? Is it... Is it more carrot and offering them the opportunity for, for novel approaches to their drugs? Is it more stick in some of the governmental regulation and the necessity for them to include it? Is it evolution and, uh, and or invasion by us by getting more peds and colleges into pharma and, and yeah, having it from a groundswell? What, what do you think is really going to be the thing? <laughs> we start with, with invasion and then you metastasize. So. But, and really to say, like, you know, what should we be continuing to do? Uh, to further encourage us? It has primarily been driven by the changing uh, requirements in, in Europe and, and now uh, in, in the U.S. With that said, I think historically incentives have been more effective 
than requirements, but you you do need the balance. And it's been re- the requirements that have enabled conversations even take place at, at, at an earlier stage. Uh, we need to find better incentives for companies to start earlier for our high-priority targets, our high-priority drugs. Not all drugs are, are created the same, and uh, uh, the importance of studying certain drugs certainly uh, can vary depending on uh, the disease and, and the drug. Uh, so finding incentives that, that do that more effectively, I think, will be important. And looking at other ways to mitigate risks for companies, and by that I mean economic risks. The reality for, you know, cancers that we treat, we, as you know, we treat some cancers where the annual incidence in the U.S. is less than 100 cases a year. If you're a parent of a child who has one of those cancers, you're not particularly interested that there are only 100 other children. You want research. You want the, the best treatment. And those economic models uh, are difficult. And I do think public-private uh, partnerships are going to be a part of, of that solution. And we did speak to that in, uh, in, in the past. But looking at the the risks that company face economically and seeing what we can do to mitigate those risks, I think, uh, will be important. It's not that the people in pharma uh, don't understand why we should develop drugs for children with cancer. Is that coming up with an economically viable model is is difficult to do that. With that said, uh, as you point out, there are an increasing number of pediatric oncologists who have either established or become part of programs in pharma, and that is important. You need to have advocacy not only from outside but uh, from inside and knowledge uh, from inside about both the unique opportunities and challenges for drug development in children with cancer. Certainly the industry uh, interaction is is vital, but also challenging, difficult, regulatory, funding, business models. Um, That Institute of Medicine report with the public, you had talked about uh, creating a perhaps a, a virtual company, I believe was the word, uh, that might help mediate the challenges of conducting such studies for industry on behalf of pediatrics. Has anything come of that report or anything come of that model? Yes and no. Uh, the need is still absolutely there. Efforts to um, realize such a, a public-private partnership have not been successful to date, but there is activity uh in this area, and there are, in fact, efforts being made. And perhaps I can talk about uh, a focused area that I I do think might come to fruition within the next one to two years uh, uh, of a goal of public-private partnership. When one looks at uh, why companies are reluctant to start pediatric trials, it is predominantly economic. And the one unspoken part of that assessment is a company, or I'd say most companies, don't want to be left with developing a drug just for a rare childhood cancer. If the only signal occurs in a rare childhood cancer, uh, that becomes a significant problem for a company. And there are examples of this, and I'll give you uh, the, the most recent examples. Probably five years ago, maybe even a little bit more, IGFR1, insulin like growth factor receptor 1, was a very hot target uh, for many cancers. And there were a total of seven companies in uh, developing targeted agents, the majority of them antibodies, I think one or two small molecules. 
the only reproducible signal seen in clinical trials across the class was in patients with Ewing sarcoma. That was the only reproducible signal. Uh, the adult phase three programs, uh, to my knowledge, all of them failed. We uh, in the children's oncology group had a uh, definitive randomized study ready and approved to uh, build on that signal to determine if these agents could improve the outcome uh, for children with uh, Ewing sarcoma. And for almost three years, that study sat waiting as one company after the next pulled its drug from development. They were closing down their adult development program. Therefore, they felt compelled to close down their pediatric development program. Ultimately, we negotiated collaboration with the NCI, where the NCI could step in and vial available drug from a company, run the study through the COG, and conduct the randomized phase three. So to circle back to the uh, public-private partnership, one role that I think such a partnership could take on would become to become the guarantor of development. To say, if you as a drug company um, want to close down development and the only, only clinical signal is in a rare childhood cancer, um, we will take on continuing development of that drug for you. You will not be obligated to do it. And we think that might mitigate the concerns of being stuck uh, in a public relations nightmare of having a drug that works in children with cancer and shutting down an operation uh, if there's a guarantor to do that. And that's where the discussions are. I think it's it's feasible. I think it's economically viable because the number of drugs we expect where there's a clear clinical signal in childhood cancer and the adult program falls down are going to be relatively few. But it's the concept of having a guarantor that might open the gates for certain drugs entering into the clinical realm at a much earlier stage than they currently do. What would be the incentive for a drug company to provide the drug for that further development? So the, the idea here is they're shutting down their program, um, but the, the, the idea is, look, we can get started in pediatrics, and if our adult program fails, we're not going to be obligated to develop the drug. They, you know, I'm sure it can be constructed where they maintain rights, but they're not going to be held in a position where they will economically fail, lose money, if they're successful. So the idea then is to say, okay, we can let pediatric oncology begin to develop this. If our adult program fails, we're not going to be held accountable. And we're not really giving up any value by letting someone else take it on when we are not able to. Really, and this has been discussed, and it's been discussed with representatives of bio, with pharma, uh, the two organizations I'm referring to, uh, the trade organizations, there's support there. I think there's support in the philanthropic community. I think it would require some support, perhaps from the NCI, some support from philanthropy, but most importantly, buy-in from the private sector saying, yeah, this is a good idea. We will, you know, we will be supportive of turning our drug over should we decide to stop development. No obligation. They can continue development. But if we decide to stop development and the community wants to study it, we will allow the community to study it at no cost to us other than perhaps providing the remaining drug substance sure. uh, to them. And the idea then, it, it mitigates the risk of, of starting early and seeing a signal, which is, I mean, it's counterintuitive. Uh, you want the drug to work, but the last place you might want it to work 
is in a child if it's not going to work in an adult. But that's the unfortunate economics of the situation. So following along those same lines, I think I'd be interested to hear your perspective. You probably have a little bit of a unique uh, view of this. Many of us work with uh, philanthropic organizations on boards of directors or whatnot. Where have you seen that organizations, private organizations, have had uh, the greatest impact on on childhood cancer. I know we've seen some successes with advocacy. We have many organizations that fundraise and provide grants or whatnot. Some provide infrastructure. But what, what do you see the biggest value is for our community as they make up a large part of our audience? It's at several several levels. Certainly at the advocacy level. And not every organization, I mean, you can have a purely philanthropic, funding research, funding patient care, uh, funding social support for families. All of those are important areas. You can also have areas where you're purely uh, advocating and often you're trying to do a mix, a mix of both. Where I have seen, um, progress is in the community coming together on the advocacy side uh, to have a more uh, unified voice and, and message. And that's real important up on the Hill, that if uh, our representatives are hearing multiple different messages, it's hard for them to, to act. And so there are, I would say, two efforts that are related but not identical that have in part driven a process where there's education for advocates, where there's forums for advocates, um, one is uh, uh, called the Alliance for Childhood Cancer, which brings together groups that have a, a, a national presence as well as professional societies, uh, ASFO, ASCO, uh, and so forth, along with a, a range of uh, philanthropic organizations that have advocacy as part of their mission. The other is uh, a larger and more diverse group um, called CAC2, Coalition Against Childhood Cancer, CAC2, where it, it's a forum. I forget the number of members, but it's an impressive number of it's members. It's big. Uh, it's getting bigger. Yeah, where, where again, information can be shared, goals can be shared, advocacy can be shared. So that has been, um, I think, you know, an impressive amount of work from from advocacy group, philanthropic groups, to coalesce uh, to increase their effectiveness. The other opportunity and challenge is there are many, many foundations. And uh, I think historically there have been times, efforts to um, dissuade families from forming foundations. And I think often those efforts are, are misplaced. Yes, encourage families that want to get involved to work with existing effective organizations is a very impactful way to do that, be it St. Baldrick's Foundation, be it Alex's Lemonade Stand Foundation, uh, and, and the like. But as pediatric oncologists, we have to recognize that um, for many families, uh, forming a foundation is part of the healing process. And part of our job is you know not only to care for the child but obviously care for the family and that healing process uh, is very important and um, the knowledge the passion the 
energy that go into it um, is in, is incredible. So we should not ever think that the diverse landscape of organizations is a negative. It, it's a positive. And find ways that everyone can participate and make an impact, be it small foundations, large foundations, but recognize that uh, for many, this is a, an important part of healing and, as importantly, an important part of making it better for the next generation of children. So you've had, you had some examples where our families and patients have had impact within the walls of our Congress. Do they also have impact within the walls of, of the private sector within industry? Oh, they, they do. The other thing that I think is important to recognize is the depth of knowledge of families that are involved is incredible and the expertise that's there. And that, I think, we as a community probably haven't tapped into as effectively as we should. But they're incredibly smart, driven, knowledgeable, uh, and energetic. We have to build our partnerships. We're not in this alone. You know, the era of the doctor solving everything is long past us. It takes a, it does take a community to do this, and the advocacy and philanthropic organizations uh, are equal partners uh, in that. Um, so I'm not, I don't know if I directly answered an, answered your question, but it, it absolutely they are impactful, including with the private sector. Uh, no one tells a story uh, better than a family. No matter how long you've been doing this uh, as, a, as a physician or physician scientist, uh, the stories that will get heard and should get heard are those of the families we care for. Every year for the last uh, number of years that I can recall, we've had some issue at some point where a drug shortage occurs. This, this private uh, public um, corp, uh, corporation that you're discussing, is, is that a good route to kind of address this, of some way to guarantee supply. You know, a lot of these drugs were at the mercy of generic companies, were at the mercy of, of the environment. Uh, when the hurricane went through Puerto Rico, and a lot of uh, uh, drug manufacturing and a lot of supply manufacturing occurs there. Um, so kind of like, what, what should we be looking at as, as options to kind of solve that problem? I think the first important message um, for the community is the drug shortage problem has not been solved. A Band-Aid has been placed on it, and that Band-Aid is loosely applied, and it's coming off. Congress did act, made some changes, gave greater power to the FDA, and the FDA Office of Drug Shortages is a highly committed group uh, to deal with this. But this is almost a uniquely United States problem. The drug shortage problem of uh, injectable IV medications your Christians, your IV methotrexate, your topicides, uh, of IV fluids is almost, as I said, uniquely a U.S. problem. Why is that? It is primarily, it is, I would say, exclusively economic. So, uh, you know, for a, uh, a manufacturing facility to come up to, as they ought to, to 2018 standards of manufacturing often has to invest substantial resources in bringing manufacturing up to that level. If they're going to make that investment, they would much rather be manufacturing a drug where they can charge a really outrageous fee versus a drug where there are limitations in what they can charge. So it's a result of how we price intravenous drugs and what the, the 
restrictions that are placed, more often than not, we have a sole supplier in this country. And if something goes wrong, be it with a, you know, a natural disaster like in, in Puerto Rico or a change that can happen that is, you know, human error or systems that are old, when you're dependent on a sole supplier, um, you are vulnerable. And yes, FDA can and has uh, allowed imports of, uh, of non-approved uh, versions of, of these generic drugs, but it is absolutely a problem. And so the question becomes, um, what are the solutions? A public-private partnership, one could, and there have been discussions of um, creating a not-for-profit company that manufactured these drugs. I think that is a potentially an economic solution to put in place, but it's not an easy one. And what I and I think others have advocated for is a, a national stockpile of essential cancer drugs that if and only if the nation runs out, as we have historically in, in uh, with methotrexate in the past, now on the cusp of vincristine asparaginase, or asparaginase or atoposide, um, that there's a, that the a stockpile can be uh, released. It is not trivial. I mean, this is not identical to how we manage vaccines or critical uh, medications uh, for for, biolog for, for <laughs> biologic attacks. But I I think the message becomes um, that we haven't solved it. That we may have put a band aid a band aid on it. It may be helpful, but there are children. I think who remain at risk that their outcome will be compromised because of, of a drug shortage. How you um, impact Congress to make additional changes is not not trivial. They have it listened and they didn't have it because they did drive efforts. Um, I think what we did in the COG, we've uh, commissioned our bioethics groups to look at ways to try to mitigate uh, shortages and looked at uh, the ethics of how one does this and looked at programs that uh, many of our centers have set up for when we do have drug shortages. I think that perhaps the most effective strategy is to tell people what really has to happen, what really is happening, is it's forcing us to ration. And rationing these medications for the children with cancer is fundamentally unethical. Uh, and I think that's the message we have to put out there, that we are being forced in a position to ration because we're still facing drug shortages. What the solutions are to that, as I said, uh, are, are less clear. I do think uh, a, a strategic reserve is one solution, not trivial. Um, we are fortunate in the U.S. that through the Children's Oncology Group, we actually do have a network that can reach about 90% of children with cancer. So we have a mechanism to get drugs to centers. And I think we would have ways to estimate what the annual needs are for our patients. But better economic models that alleviate the problem where we only have a sole source provider. Those changes, I think, are more complex, but those are the long-term solutions. One of the other audiences that we that commonly listen to this podcast are 
trainees, fellows, medical students, residents. Hearing a lot of the things we've discussed today can be a little disheartening, but we as a group here at least are still very hopeful for the future. And what advice would you give to people who are thinking of entering pediatric oncology or are early into pediatric oncology um, for things they should be looking for or thinking about in getting the most out of their careers? Since you have had a very successful one. It is an incredible time uh, to be in this field from a scientific perspective. I think the reason we have been successful, where we've been successful, is that anyone who's done this, I don't know, Tim, I would say for more than 10 years, has seen the, the, the fruits of our research. Um, children that we know we couldn't cure a decade ago, we can cure today. We have seen, and everyone, you know, the participation rate in research of families is the highest amongst uh, pediatric oncology versus any uh, disease area. And as a subspecialty of pediatric oncologists engaged in clinical research, no one, no one comes close to that we do. And one of the fundamental reasons is that we've seen the success of what we do. Now, as, as we've discussed and discussed last time, the tools we have in hand, you know, we, we did not imagine many years ago. And so the, you, you won't meet a more group, optimistic group of people than you will in pediatric oncology, despite the great sadness that's part of our field. So I, I do think it, it, it blends uh, science and it blends what many of us view as medicine, caring for children and families over an extended period of time, bringing the best treatments, bringing new treatments. Uh, it's an incredibly exciting time. I think leaders, including our, you know, leadership of research organizations, leadership of institutions, uh, leadership in government, have to realize the incredible return on the investment because we need to get the best and the brightest in the field, and they need to see a path forward that their ideas can compete and ultimately that they can pursue them. So I, I, I do think it, it is an optimistic time. It's an incredible time, but that doesn't come without folks paying attention. The one thing that always strikes me about families is how, at least early on in their cancer walk with their child, uh, how powerless they feel, but how much as they move along in that journey, how much more they want to begin to be involved, not simply in the bugs and drugs, give my child the pill, make sure they're at their appointment, but how what they can personally do to contribute to the assault on this monster. What advice would you give, and, and many of, of, of the listeners to this podcast obviously are, are parents, what advice would you give them to empower them with respect to kind of moving forward and what they can do to make a, a, a tangible, uh, durable effect or have a tangible, durable effect on research in pediatric cancer? Well, certainly there's no more important a partnership um, than between the pediatric oncology team and, and, and a patient and family. That, that partnership is, is central to everything we do and, and to our success. And physicians, and this won't come as a surprise to anyone listening or in the room, are not always very good communicators. And in fact, uh, you learn a lot of things in medical school. I still don't think we, we learn how to, how to talk with families and talk with patients. So the first point is that, um, families should feel empowered to ask questions. Because there are times when we think we've explained something brilliantly clear to a family, and actually what we said has been complete and utter nonsense, and no one in the room understood what was going on, but the physician will sit there thinking, well, you know, that's, that's a Nobel in, in literature right there, <laughs> and it's, uh, and, and it's not. So, 
the importance of uh, families knowing they can ask questions. And even when they don't know what questions to ask, to ask, well, what questions should I ask? I think um, that is, is critical. Um, but to get more specifically to your question, I'd start with no family should feel obligated to focus on anyone more than their child and their family because it's a devastating diagnosis no matter the diagnosis. And um, the amount of energy, time, and resources it takes to get through any of our treatments is, is enormous. For those families that want to build on an experience that uh, often times can be devastating, I would say never underestimate the power of what you can do uh, as an individual, what you can do in partnership with other parents and families. There's a great deal of experience out there of people who have lived this. And one thing I, when I teach and teach, you know, fellows and, uh, and even jun junior faculty, you know, when a family asks, what would you do if were your child? Um, my answer is I have no idea because it's unimaginable. And so we should never think we understand what it is unless you've had a child with a life-threatening disease. Never think you understand. We can learn enough to provide guidance, but to truly understand the depth of the fear and the depth of the diagnosis, um, we, we shouldn't minimize. And so that... Uh, what other families can bring there. And that experience can certainly be leveraged. And learning from other families who have lived this, who are at different stages, with successful outcomes or with outcomes that have uh, not resulted in success, uh, there's a great deal you can learn from other families and, and partnering with them and making a difference um, for the next generation of children. But there's not one right pathway to do that. Uh, and for those who do, uh, we welcome those partnerships. Uh, and we welcome the leaders in the advocacy and philanthropic communities that, that can really make that happen. So let's uh, wrap up by turning to the future. And uh, let's start with the future of COG. Your term, is there a limited number of terms? It is. It's year? two five-year terms. So I am think I have a two or three Two to three years left. It sounds like a prison sentence, but it's really, <laughs> it's really not. I have two to, two to three more years so left. So what do you hope to accomplish in those two to three years? So I think um, we, we've come a long way, and I'm proud of the work that the COG has done. We've set up an infrastructure that will allow for uh, genomic testing of any child with cancer in the country or throughout the COG. And so as discoveries are made, as new drugs come into play, we have a, a, a study, Project Every Child, that will allow us to, as quickly as possible, take that science and, and turn it into, into better treatments. So we've built uh, an infrastructure that allows us to do that. We've now built an infrastructure uh, for children with relapse cancer through Pediatric Match that does a very similar thing, allows us to study the, the biology, the genomics of what children's tumors look like at relapse, where we have large gaps in knowledge. We've also partnered with process engineers to look at how we can uh, be more efficient in starting new trials. You know, the pace of science today is continuing to accelerate, and mm -hmm. systems that were developed 20, 30, 40 years ago, we can't expect them to keep working. So we've put in place uh, new models that allow us, we think, to 
more efficiently take the best idea and get it out to the community. There are other areas that, that uh, we're, we're focusing on. I think one area that we want to improve is how can we more rapidly share the results? How can we publish the results in a, in a more timely, timely manner? Because most people uh, are not really interested to how hard we work. They're really interested to what results we produce. And so sharing that knowledge, publishing that knowledge, sharing the data, and finding better and faster ways to do that I think will be uh, a focus of the upcoming years, as well as uh, finding ways to better engage uh, young investigators who want to go into pediatric oncology and show them different paths forward where they can make contributions, be part of this community, and make sure we're always attracting the best and the brightest. There's probably no better place to end than on the future generation. So thank you for being here today. Thank you for sharing your time with all of us and uh, hope we didn't put you through the ringer or make your words come back to haunt you from episode number nine. If anyone does have questions for us or for Dr. Adamson, we'd be happy to forward them on to him. You could send us a note at twippo at solvingkidscancer.org. Occasionally we do get once in a while an email. Uh, thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. The team includes Donald Ludwinski, our executive producer, and thanks to Scott Kennedy and John London, who are founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.